0: Matthew 15, page 1043, if you're going to use a Bible under a chair in the row in front of you, there's one provided. I want you to open your Bible and follow along, Uh, 1043. We've been going through the book of Matthew, and lately in chapter 14 especially, we've been looking at different examples of different kinds of soil, different kinds of responses to Jesus Christ, And today we get to the Pharisees. And if you grew up in church and uh, spent time reading the Word of God, you are familiar with the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. You're familiar with these uh, people. They are the quintessential example of hardened soil. Just reject Jesus outright from the beginning, wanted nothing to do with Him, and then As we'll see in a little bit, they did more than just reject him. They became outright enemies of him, seeking to discredit him and destroy him and ruin him in every way possible. And so they are uh, the focus, the secondary focus, because the focus of every gospel passage is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the focus. And secondarily, the Pharisees are the focus. And thirdly, we'll see how all of that applies to us today. So... Open up your Bible, take out your notes, uh, write in the blanks and add more to it, and we'll seek to understand these things. But two basic questions that we continue to ask over and over, and I do not want to miss that today again. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus, and what is your response to Jesus? That's the focus of the gospel. Before we dig in, let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in the fact that you have been so gracious to us to not only send your son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, but you've also sent your Holy Spirit to uh, inspire human authors to write the very Word of God down for us. And so we come to that Word, and we ask your Spirit not only to now uh, illuminate our hearts and minds to receive it, but strengthen us and encourage us and grow and change us that we might obey it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Matthew 15, I'll read verses 1 through 9. You follow along. This is God's divine revelation, God's word to us this morning. May we listen to it. Our theme this morning is a little bit longer, so hang in there. See if you can get this. You can write it down. King Jesus affirms biblical authority, including the ongoing authority of God's law, and condemns as hypocrites all religious people who refuse to submit to it. All right, a lot of pieces here. I'll say it again. King Jesus affirms biblical authority, including the ongoing authority of God's law. So that's what he affirms. And he condemns, all as hypocrites, all religious people who refuse to submit to it. So that's what we're going to see in the passage. Uh, if you get that and understand that, you should be able to follow along and see uh, what the Word of God has to say in its particularities. And so let's dig in. The first part, the first two verses. The Pharisees attacked Jesus for breaking a human commandment. The Pharisees attacked Jesus for breaking a human commandment right at the beginning. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said to him, This might seem like an innocent situation. This might appear as if the scribes and the Pharisees have an honest question and are legitimately seeking illumination. They come all the way from Jerusalem and they say, Jesus, you know, we had a few religious questions. We see that your, your disciples don't do what the elders teach us to do. And, and so we're just, we're just curious. We're, we just want to know what you have to say. That is not the case. You should not hear them speak in that way. They have traveled from Jerusalem to probably Gennesaret on a mission. For months now, the Pharisees have been seeking to discredit Jesus. So back in Matthew 12, verse 14, you will see they began to plot to destroy him. And not just destroy his reputation, destroy his ministry, but to destroy his life. And and later on, they will succeed at the end of Matthew. So they have been out to get him for months now. And now the leaders of this opposition have traveled all the way from Jerusalem. And I looked that up today. Uh, Not today. I looked it up this week. It's about a three-day walk. If you walk 10 to 12 miles a day, it'd take you three days to get there. And and that's a pretty good walk. So they've come a long way. They came all this way from Jerusalem to ask a very important question. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Now, as parents, you might realize, you might ask the same question of your children over and over. Why don't you wash your hands before you eat? I've told you a million times, wash your hands before you eat. What's your problem? But that might not seem like a question that you would walk for three days to ask your kids. It might not seem like this important thing. I have to come all the way from Jerusalem to ask this question. It's hard to to grasp, but you have to understand what they're asking. But it just sounds so ridiculous unless you understand what's behind it. If you don't see this as an attack by Christ's enemies plotting to destroy him, then the question as well as the answer will seem completely out of character. But the context of their seeking to destroy him and his response to this conflict and this attack will start to make sense in that context. Now what we see right away is the question brings up the tradition of the elders. Notice that the tradition of the elders is not Scripture. They are specific, specifically saying that this is not in the Bible. This is not in the Old Testament. This is not God's law. This is just simply, but for them, simply is not the word. This is the tradition of the elders. But they recognize this isn't biblical. They're not necessarily, they're not at all. Let me put that more, more dogmatically. They are not at all coming with a verse of Scripture that they pulled out of context and tried to apply to the law. They know there's no biblical law for this. Only Tradition. The law of the elders. And the tradition was to wash your hands ceremonially before you eat. It has to do with defilement. And that's why next week, when we look at verses 10 and following, Christ will talk all about defilement because the only reason you wash your hands ceremoniously is not because they're dirty physically, they're dirty spiritually. You might have happened to touch a Gentile. You might have happened to touch something that a Gentile touched. You might have touched something unclean. And so you need to wash your hands in a special way so that you won't defile yourself by putting something in your mouth that touched your dirty, unclean hands. Spiritually speaking, that's the situation. But Christ doesn't really deal with that at all. So we're going to focus on what Christ deals with in this first part. And so the Pharisees act as if they, they want to know why Jesus' disciples don't follow the tradition. But notice this is not an honest question. This is an attack on Jesus for disobeying a man-made command. These traditions are not simply our family likes to watch It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve. This is not the tradition that we go to grandma's house for Christmas. This is not the tradition that we sit on the right side of the auditorium three rows back every Sunday for the last 45 years. It's not that kind of tradition. It's the kind of tradition that if someone sat in your row, you walk up to them and you say to them, not kindly, not lovingly, you say, this is my row. This is where I sit. It is law and you must move. And we will, if you don't move uh, willingly, we will get you removed. Because it's not just a desire. It's not just a tradition. It's not just a habit. This is law. Now, we know that that would never happen in a church, especially a church like ours. And if it does... um, let, us, let me know. We'll take care of that. That's not biblical. So this is, this is a tradition that became commandment. Notice that. It became commandment. And the, and the way we know that is because the way Jesus applies Isaiah twenty nine thirteen in verse 9, to the situation. These aren't just traditions. And so we have to see that right from the beginning. We're not talking about traditions. We're talking about man-made commands, man-made religion. And so Jesus has confronted the Pharisees' false religion and has taught his disciples not to obey their religion at all. Not to obey their religion, don't follow their religion, and therefore don't follow their commands. It's a false religion with false commands. It is man-made, not from God. Don't do it at all. How does Jesus respond to their attack? Verses 3-6, through Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for breaking God's commandment. Notice the comparison. The wording is almost exactly similar. So Jesus answers their question with a question and turns the tables on them. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for breaking God's commandment. Notice he never answers their question because it isn't an honest, legitimate question. He never explains why. If they really wanted to know why, could he give an explanation? Absolutely, he could. But they, it's, have you ever, you've had this happen, right? your parents, most of you, almost all of you, parents, you've had kids come to you with a question. You know that everything that ends with a question mark isn't actually a question? You know everything that is stated in the form of a question isn't actually a question? Have you ever been accused with a question? Have you ever been attacked with a question? You ever had anybody demand with a question mark at the end? Okay, so, so understand this is the situation we're at. And if someone comes and demands with a question, if you respond by answering their question, you miss the point and you're going to have bad communication. You don't address the question. You address the demand. You address the attack. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So instead, Jesus answers with a question of his own. And his question is, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? They are focused on the breaking of religious tradition But notice it's more than tradition. These are man-made commandments of a false religion. Man-made commandments of a false religion. That's what they're worried about breaking. And Jesus now turns the focus on breaking God's commandment. You are breaking. You're worried about breaking man's commandments. I'm worried about why you're breaking God's commandments. For the sake of your commandments. Read it that way. More clearly. That's how the tradition should be read. So Jesus turns that focus on to God's commandment. What are God's commandments? For God commanded. God commanded, honor your father and mother. Anybody know where that's found? Children from the catechism class, honor your father and mother. What commandment is that? The fifth? Say that with such confidence. The fifth? the fifth? The fifth. That's right. It's the fifth commandment. What does the fifth commandment teach? Anyone else know the answer to that question? Gavin? That's the commandment. That's the commandment. What does it teach? Love and obey your father and mother. I I don't remember either, and I didn't study. So love and honor, that's what it is, love and honor. Thank you. See, that's what I need. I need the kids to give us the right answer because the old people can't quite remember all the answers and all the questions. This is what we've been going over in catechism class. We've been going over the Ten Commandments, and uh, we know the Fifth Commandment. And we teach what not only what does it say, but what does it mean? What does it teach? And so the the idea here, letter A, God's command is stated. Jesus restates God's command out of Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. So God's command is stated. Exodus 20, verse 12. Can we throw that up there on the screen? Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. This is the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments. So God's command is stated. Secondly, God's penalty is Is commanded. So God commanded, honor your father and mother, and God commanded the next thing as well. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. So the command is stated, and the penalty is also commanded, and the penalty is the penalty of death. Now I have your attention. That comes from Exodus 21, verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So curses, reviles, it's the same point. So both the command and the penalty for breaking the law are commanded. Notice God doesn't just issue commands. He also issues the penalty. We are very familiar with the commands, but because we are so deficient in our understanding of the Old Testament, the Old Testament law and its application for today, we don't understand the penalty phase. Or we read the penalty phase and we say, wait a second. (laughs) <laughs> Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Have any of you ever cursed at your parents? Don't raise your hand. I'm not just talking to the kids here. I'm talking to all ages. Most of us, at some point in time in our relationship with our parents, will revile or curse our parents with our mouths. Usually it comes between 12 and 18. Sometimes 8 and 38, it comes at different times and stages of life. Some of our rebellion and lack of honor and submission to our parents will last longer than other kids, but that this shows up. So, if there's ever a child who curses their parents, should we kill them? That's what this says. Is that how many kids made it past teenage years in, in Jerusalem, in Israel? How do they sell a nation if this is true? Well, in a minute, we'll talk about what that looks like, because it seems so ludicrous to us that if any child curses their parents, we kill them. It seems like it would be impossible to have any children make it to adulthood. So, so how do we do it? Well, we just say, well, that doesn't apply. The death penalty doesn't apply. We know that. Did they really apply it? I don't know, but we don't do that today. So who needs to worry about how to understand that? Well, if you don't worry about how to understand it, then how do you understand this text? Because Jesus doesn't just bring up the honor commandment that we are all happy with. We all like to quote that commandment to our kids. We love it in Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. Honor your father and mother. But it starts with, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Then it quotes the fifth commandment. And we like to talk about honor and obey. And we're happy to quote that. We don't quote the penalty for dishonor and disobedience, do we? Well, it doesn't say that this is the penalty for disobedience. We'll talk about that some other time. But we have to understand that God doesn't just give commands. He gives penalty. God commanded both, and in this case, both the command and the penalty were being broken, and both are a part of the command of God. If you don't follow the command and you don't enact the penalty, so say, we're going to follow the command, honor. We're going to demand that kids honor their parents. What happens when they don't? We put them in timeout. We take away video games for a day, a week, a month, a year, forever. We ground them from activities for the rest of their existence. What's the command in the Bible? What's the penalty in the Bible? Well, God doesn't just give commands. He also many times gives penalties, and He especially gives penalties when it's not just a sin, but it's a crime. So notice you'll see that there are different kinds of penalties in the Old Testament, and there's different reasons for that. I I wasn't even going to say all of this, but I want to give a little bit more foundation to this because it can be shocking. But Christ quotes the command, and He quotes the penalty. If you don't deal with the penalty and just skip over it, what are you doing with God's Word? Now notice... Could the Pharisees argue with anything Jesus said? Is that the fifth commandment? Did God command it? Did God command the command and the penalty? They can't argue. That's Bible. That's law. That's commanded. And in fact, their argument necessarily, their problem isn't necessarily with a command. The question now is how are they breaking God's commandment? He says, Jesus says, You are breaking this commandment. How are they breaking it? And so Jesus uh, explains their disobedience. So their disobedience is explained starting in verse 5. And this is explained in what's called the Korban Rule. It's explained in Mark as well, but we see an example here. So God has said, but, notice the contrast, always notice the contrast, especially in a narrative, but you say. God has clearly given the command and the penalty, but you say. So instead of obeying God's spoken commandments, they speak their own commandment. And what's their commandment? If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Wait a second. I thought God said to honor your father and your mother. Well, if you say this, you don't have to honor your father and mother. Wouldn't you like that, kids? Wouldn't you like a command that would allow you out of the command for honor? Well, as long as you say or do this, you don't have to follow that commandment. That would be great. This is the Korban rule. What is the Korban rule? What are these children doing that is not honoring their parents? These are adult children who take their personal finances that were needed to care for older or elderly parents, and they dedicate that money to God by dedicating it to the temple. They would promise to give the money to the temple when they died. Therefore, that money technically became God's money because God's going to get it when they die. And now I can't use it to care for my elderly parents who need help financially. But because it's not God's yet, it's still in my possession. What can I do with it? Whatever I need to do with it. I need to uh, build an addition onto my house. I need a, I need a third car because the, the first two cars just aren't enough. Uh, I need to buy a trike or, you know, some special toy to drive around in Michigan for two months of the year when it's finally warm enough to drive it. Uh, you know, I'm looking for those. Or maybe today it hit, it's going to hit 50. We're going to get on the bike and ride, right? You know, it's just, you know, <laughs> the icicles are forming, but it's warm enough. It's just warm enough. Um, <laughs> So what are we going to do with that money? It doesn't matter what we're going to do with it. It's, it's not yours because I've given it to God. And therefore, I dishonor my parents because I can't give them what's, what's God's because it's dedicated to God. And we have to understand that this Korban rule is not biblical. This is not in the Bible. This is not God's idea. This is not God's command. This is not biblical in any way. In fact... What does Jesus say about this man-made command, man-made rule, man-made tradition? He says, so for the sake of your tradition, verse 6, you have made void the word of God. The word void there means legally invalid. They were legally invalidating God's word by elevating man's tradition, that's the word used in the text, above God's word. God's law is invalidated by a higher law, a greater law, a more important law. Whose law is that? Man's law. God has said, but you say. God has commanded, but you command, and your command is greater. Therefore, this command doesn't need to be followed. Did they say that command wasn't a command? Did they deny the scripture? Did they deny the Old Testament law? Did they deny the Ten Commandments? No. But you don't have to deny God's word to have your own law that trumps it. I don't mean that politically speaking at all. (laughs) You can say, oh, we believe in the Bible. We follow God's law. Well, what about this law? Well, we don't follow that law because of this other law. Whatever law is the final say is the law that matters. And their law, their man-made law was invalidating God's word, God's law. So this wasn't a tradition that just happened to conflict with God's Word. This was a tradition that was specifically designed as a justification for breaking God's command. The Pharisees were not taking advantage of a loophole in God's law. They were not quoting Scripture. They were not abusing Scripture. They had designed their own law as a means of emptying God's law of its authority. They were invalidating the authority of God's law with the authority of their own law, man-made commands from a man-made religion. And that is why, notice carefully, that is why Jesus taught his disciples not to submit to the elders' traditions. In fact, submitting to their man-made religion would be sinful. The man-made religion competes with God's religion. Man-made commandments compete with God's commandments. This human authority was competing with divine authority. So if you follow these traditions of the elders, the disciples of Christ and Christ himself would be submitting to an authority... And a religion that was competing with God's authority and true religion. Now, I want what I just said to sink into your situation, our situation, the situation in our country and other countries right now. If there's a man-made law that would lead you to disobey God's law, that has gone above God's law, we must do what? Not submit to it at all, because we cannot give man-made religion, man-made authority, false religion, false commands, any room, any step at all. Do not give an inch. Do not give a foothold to the devil. So here's what Matthew Henry says. Human authority must never be submitted to, which, which sets up in competition with divine authority. Any human authority human authority that sets up competition with divine authority must never be submitted to. Why can't churches just follow the mandates and not meet? Or only meet under certain conditions? Or only meet with certain percentages? Why can't they just go along? Why is that pastor in Canada in jail for refusing the man-made mandates about worship? Because if you give the government, and by that I mean the civil rulers, the civil government, an inch or a foot into the worship of the church, what will they do? Oh, no, not our rulers, not their rulers. So we have to understand what's happening here. Don't give it, that's why, why can't you just wash your hands? How hard is it to wash your hands? I would apply that to something else going on today, but I don't want to be too controversial. Why can't you just, you fill in the blank. Congratulations. (laughs) The reason why is because when that intrudes on the worship of the church, this is what we're talking about. I'm not going to deal with everything in every circumstance. Don't do it. Don't give the civil rulers one inch in telling the church what we can and cannot do in worship. Do not give them one inch. If you give an inch, they will take everything, starting with a mile. This is how we work. This is what the Bible says. So what happens next? Jesus condemns the Pharisees as hypocrites. Verses 7 to 9. Notice the strong condemnation. Jesus condemns the Pharisees as hypocrites. And I love how the translators have put the exclamation point. That is not in the original Greek. That is added because of emphasis. You know, it wasn't like Jesus whispered it. You hypocrites. He wasn't soft or tender or gentle. Uh, he, He said this strongly. It's a strong condemnation. Jesus is not politically correct in his response. He's not sensitive or kind in his response. Many Christians, notice this, many Christians are good with calling out other Christians for their hypocrisy. In fact, it's a cool thing today to point out all the hypocrisy of all the Christians we know. The one thing we're not very cool with doing is pointing out the hypocrisy of people who aren't Christians, as Christians. But I'm not sure that most Christians realize what Jesus is condemning so strongly here. Jesus is not condemning the hypocrisy of how we typically understand it. We think of hypocrisy as, a couple different ways, saying one thing and doing another. You tell your brother... Not to, to yell at, don't yell at me. And then five minutes later, what are you doing? You're yelling at your brother. You are a hypocrite. We see that as hypocrisy. Another uh, type of hypocrisy that we see is holding other people to a standard that we don't live up to. You must always do this. Well, you don't do that. Well, you know, different rules apply to different people. That's, that's hypocrisy. That's how we hear the word hypocrisy or we hear the word hypocrite people who do that. But Jesus is defining it differently here. How does he define It's it this, hypocrisy is when religious people put man's law above God's law. Now, I have in your notes professing Christians, but I'm changing that, so you can do a strike through here. All right, I've been wrestling this week with a lot of things and uh, trying to understand how this text, not only what it means, but how we apply it and, uh, and what we're talking about here. Why, why I don't think this is applied to professing Christians at all in the hypocrisy, but it applied to religious people. So it's religious people. It's, this is religious hypocrisy for sure. It has to do with worshiping God for sure. It has to do with people who pretend to worship God but don't really worship God because they've made their own religion, and therefore they worship a false God with false religion, with false commandments, man-made commandments. But usually when we preach or teach this passage, we apply this as if the Pharisees are professing Christians. Are the Pharisees professing to follow Christ at all? Are they pretend followers of Christ? Are they somewhat followers of Christ? They have rejected Christ outright. They've so rejected Christ that they're out to try to destroy him. these These are not the crowds. And these are not disciples. In a minute, we're going to see disciples. We've already seen disciples. Next passage that ties right to this passage, you're going to see Jesus address the crowds. And then you're going to see him address the disciples. Three different kinds of soil. Three different kinds of people. Enemies of God. Followers of God that we have to understand where they stand. We've talked about that a lot. And true followers of God. If you wanted to deal with this as pretend followers of Christ or religious hypocrites in the way we think of professing Christians who aren't really Christians, that would be the crowds most closely. The Pharisees are people who hate Christ reject Christ, want nothing to do with Christ. So to apply this passage as if the Pharisees represent professing Christians who struggle with hypocrisy would be, I believe, to abuse the text and miss the true application. But I do want to call them religious people because there's a specific illustration that does fit. Hypocrisy is when religious people put man's law above God's law. They are teaching. Go to the end of verse 9. The key phrase is teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The commandments of men are being taught as divine truth. We are saying man-made religion, man-made commandments are biblical or authoritative or divine. You can say that different ways. You teach man-made laws as truth. You teach man-made laws as God's truth. So Isaiah's condemnation in Isaiah 29 verse 13 of the professing God followers of his day applies to the Pharisees and it applies to anyone else who would do the same thing. So this isn't a problem with tradition or following tradition or continuing tradition. So you maybe have heard pastors talk about traditions and the fact is we all have traditions and churches have traditions and so Jesus is saying any church that has any tradition and follows it and won't give up their tradition they're just a bunch of hypocrites. That's not at all what this is talking about. He's not condemning tradition. Tradition. Unless your tradition becomes divine law, equal to or above divine law, then your tradition is a man-made command that supersedes God's clear scriptural commands. That's the problem. It's not just man-made tradition or man-made laws equal to God's law. It always takes precedence, to use a legal term. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus is dealing with. And with that kind of hypocrisy in mind, any religious person who does that is worshiping uselessly. So hypocrisy, this kind of hypocrisy, makes worship useless. The word is vain. In vain do they worship me. I'm working my way backward in the in, in the text because I believe it, fo- it flows backward in the sense of all the reasons why. When you teach commandments of men is doctrine, then your worship is vain, and your worship is vain when you only give lip service, but your heart doesn't truly love God. That's how this passage works. So hypocrisy makes worship useless. It's vain. It's it's pointless. It's purposeless. It's empty. All their words are just lip service. They don't have a heart for God. In fact, they have a rebellious heart against God, yet their words sound good. Their actions are passionate. Their tears flow. Their hands are raised. All of the good stuff. Yet they are not true worshipers, but enemies of God. These Pharisees are enemies of God. They're not false worshipers only. They're not professing Christians only. They are God's active enemies seeking to destroy Christ. So this is false worship. They're worshiping a false God. And when they teach the commandments of God as the commandments of men, or teach man-made commandments as divine, who's the false God they're worshiping? Themselves. We could talk about that today, couldn't we? Not just inside the church, but outside the church. Who do we worship? Who does our culture worship? We have no gods. We have no idols. We don't bow down to any golden images, any wooden images. We are we are scientific and wise people. We just worship ourselves as God. And this is why, as Christians, we don't take what someone says at face value. All kinds of wicked rebels say they love Jesus, say they follow Jesus, say they represent Jesus. But when you bring up God's law from God's word, you will see who they truly are. You will see them as hypocrites. Their hypocrisy is shown not by their words or even necessarily their actions all the time, but what they do with God's law in God's word. So it's not the earnestness of your worship activities that makes you a true disciple. It is the submission of your heart to the Word of God and God the Word. It is your submission to the Word inscripturated and the Word incarnate. It is your submission to the Bible and to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the fundamental definer and activity of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now let me apply this to professing Christians. I said that's not the main application, but I want to apply it there. Professing Christians who refuse to submit to Jesus Christ are hypocrites. Professing Christians who refuse to submit to God's law are hypocrites, as defined here. Professing Christians who make up their own law to specifically contradict God's law are hypocrites. Now you're getting the point. And in this case, a hypocrite means a non-Christian. These are not true Christians struggling with the first kinds of hypocrisy that I talked about. Double standards, or uh, expecting others to do things I won't do, or or doing what I said you shouldn't do. That's not the hypocrisy here. This is the kind of hypocrisy that makes you not a Christian at all. These Pharisees aren't hypocritical Christ followers. I've already talked about this. This is a false religion. Are they religious? Do they say they love God and worship God? But they have a false God with man-made rules and man-made religion. It's a false religion that competes with true religion following Christ. Now, what does that show up today in the church? The law of love and acceptance that Christians use to overturn God's clear commands against homosexuality, transgenderism, woman pastors, all of these things. The sexual and uh, gender rebellion against God, that word is not very well defined or very helpful, but For sake of conversation, I'll use it. They will take their own man-made religion, their own man-made laws, and they will go over God's law and teach their own laws as law, as a reason and a justification for disobeying God's clear commands. And it's happening in churches across our land on a regular basis. And and, uh, I thought about doing an exercise sometime, and I still might do this. I found a church. The church I'm going to reference here, I'm not going to give you uh, who they are at this point. You can ask about it later. I'll give that to you. But uh, this is right on their website. Tracy found this for me. You can thank Tracy for this. This is what these kind of churches teach. They teach this. This is what they say. The Bible isn't, isn't the Word of God, self-interpreting, a science book, an answer slash rule book. The Bible isn't a rule book. All right? It's not inerrant or infallible. That's what the Bible isn't. They teach the Bible is a product of community, a library of texts, multivocal, a human response to God, living and dynamic, much like our Constitution, living and dynamic. And when you have the Bible like that, then you can take God's clear commands about marriage, sexuality, male and female, and everything else, and you can just continue to sing your songs, have your hymnal, have your Bible, worship God, and teach the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches and teach it as commands. That's what you can do. And who are those people, and what do we call them? Hypocrites. This kind of hypocrite. They are not Christians at all. You don't call them to just repent of false theology or bad theology. You call them to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They're not Christians at all. So J. Gresham Machen from his book, Christianity and Liberalism, says this. Listen carefully. In the sphere of religion, in particular, the present time is a time of conflict. The great redemptive religion, which has always been known as Christianity, is battling against a totally diverse type of religious belief which is only the more destructive of the Christian faith because it makes use of traditional Christian terminology. At the root, we have two different religions, Christianity and liberalism. So anybody who says, I'm a liberal Christian, just told you they are a non-Christian who will use Christian terms and the Christian Bible and Christian worship all to promote their man-made commands and man-made religion. It's not Christianity at all. The Pharisees don't have true worship at all. They use the Old Testament. They believe in the Old Testament. They sing the Psalms, maybe without instruments. <laughs> but they don't worship the true God because they have come up with their own religion. Man-made religion, man-made commands, it's false. So this is where it hits home for us here. Who is Jesus? And what is your response to Jesus? The Bible teaches that Jesus is the creator and ruler. Jesus is the divine law giver. Jesus is Lord. Therefore, to be a Christian, you must do what? You must submit to him as Lord. Jesus is not calling Christians to repent from unbiblical traditions. Jesus is calling false Christians to repent and follow him. He's calling enemies to stop rejecting him and stop seeking to destroy him. He is calling them to repentance that leads to salvation. He is saying to those kind of hypocrites what he said to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because you are not following God. You have a false religion. And Saul of Tarsus needed to repent and follow the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and treasure, be born again and become Paul he had a false religion. He just didn't have a messed up religion. A few things wrong in his religion. What about you? It's not about whether you can sing. It's not about whether you go to church. It's not whether you know the songs. It's not whether you know the scripture. I want to tell you, I went to this church. They have a video on their website. An hour and 48 minutes dealing with their acceptance of homosexual marriage, transgenderism, all of the stuff. And that pastor stood up without cracking the Bible and went from Bible text to Bible text to Bible text and just made it sound so biblical. Most of you wouldn't even notice. I hope I'm wrong. Wouldn't even notice where he was wrong. It was biblically based. It was solid. He loves Jesus. He's got the Bible. He's been a Christian for and everything he said upended the word of God. I mean, it was, I, I mean, it's, seriously, it was impressive. There were things he said, and I said, wait a second, is that what it says? I, had, I looked it up, I had to make sure. That's what religious hypocrites do. Those are the people, like the Pharisees, that Satan uses to lead people astray, lead people into man made religion, have them turn away from Jesus Christ. Where are you? Who is Jesus? Is he your Lord? Are you submitting to him and his word and his law? Are you submitting to him or are you trumping him at every, every time his word contradicts with your desires? So therefore, your man-made religion always trumps God's word. Now, you say, I, I follow the Bible. I love Jesus. But yeah, but when it comes to that, well, my Jesus, my God wouldn't say that. My God wouldn't mean it that way. My religion doesn't stand for that. So we just kind of, you're not a Christian. You need Christ. You submit to him in everything. Follow him as Lord in everything. That is the call of the gospel. Now, what about the hypocrisy charge for Christians who are violating the other forms of hypocrisy? If you are a professing Christian here, how do you know that your double standards or your lip service aren't a demonstration that you aren't a Christian? Real Christians struggle with hypocrisy in in other ways, not this way. We struggle with saying one thing and doing another, right? Do we, do we struggle with that? Do we struggle with double standards? Holding you to a standard I won't hold myself to? If you want to know if you have a problem with that, just ask your spouse, ask your kids, or ask your parents. They will give you, hopefully, an honest response. And the answer to that is, somewhere, sometime, absolutely yes, we struggle with this. How do I know if my struggle hasn't reached the point that demonstrates I'm not a Christian? How can you tell if you're a Pharisee or not? One word. Repentance. When you sin, what do you do as a Christian? You repent. When your double standards are pointed out, what do you do? Is the point of this passage? It is the point. Now, it's, it's a point that Jesus is specifically having to do with religious people, but it has applications beyond just religious people. It has applications to all of society. That's what, what, what I believe. And that's what we're going to wrestle with a little bit here. So let's go through some of this. What do we learn from Jesus' use of the law? First, there are only two options for supreme authority. There are only two options for supreme authority, God's law or man's law. So can mankind, any people, any group of people, not just religious people or Christians, can any group of people overrule God's law with their own law? If they do that, they are breaking God's law and disobeying God. That's the only way we can overrule God's law with our own law and still be obedient. So sometimes we say, well, we follow God, we follow his law. And then we have a government over here that has man-made laws. And those laws tell us that we can't follow God's law. And as Christians, we struggle with what do we do in those moments. I've got to follow civil authority and I've got to follow God. But what happens? Most of the time, we'll just go with civil authority today, especially. So can God's law and man's law sit side by side? Well, can we just keep them equal authorities? No. Because sooner or later, when they conflict, something has to to go above. There has to be precedence. There's only one supreme law. Listen to me very carefully as I repeat this over and over. There is no moral neutrality. All law is moral. Every single law is moral because every single law made by man is telling us what is right and good, wrong and bad. Wearing a seatbelt is moral. So you break the law, don't wear a seatbelt. That seatbelt is a moral distinction, a moral command. And just take it from there, all the way up to murder, all the way up to stealing, from the least of the commands to the greatest. They're all moral because they're all saying there's a right and wrong, and there's a penalty for breaking that command. And it's a moral command. So if you say, we shouldn't take God's law and put it into civil law because that's, Uh, legislating morality. Every law legislates morality. The only question is, whose morality? Will it be God's morality or man's morality? What's the standard? Is God's law the standard for our law? Or is our law broken from God's law and therefore just man-made law? And man-made laws are a form of man-made religion. Because every law and every civil law has a basis And there is no moral neutrality. There's not God and Satan and the secularist. No. You can put those secularists who deny God, deny his word, deny his law, and you can put them where? All in this camp. If you think there's a morally neutral way not to have the basis of our law be God's law and God's word and have man-made law that isn't rebellious against God, but has no foundation, totally cut off from God's law, then you are a secularist. And you are a religious person who doesn't realize who your God is. You are your own God. You've made up your own religion. You've made up your own laws. You have no basis for right and wrong, but you will scream right and wrong in every way, in every way shape, or form in every opportunity. Based on what? Push on a secularist and say, why is this wrong? Why is that right? And they will come down to a couple of basic options. But basically it's because I think so, because I feel so, Or because we think so, or we say so, or we feel so, there's no basis. Christians say all law must found its have its founding in God's law. At least that's what we should say, but we haven't said it for so long that our government forgot about that, and now we are reaping the whirlwind that we sowed. So, what does Jesus do? Jesus affirms. I love how don't you? Don't you? I'm a Jesus follower. We just follow Jesus. You know, we don't get into theology. Are you going to follow Jesus on this one? Jesus affirms the continuing authority of God's law in the Old Testament. Jesus says the Old Testament law and the penalty still applies today. You want to follow Jesus now? Be careful when your kids curse you. (laughs) But I thought we weren't under God's law. I thought we were under grace. Grace. I thought we weren't a theocracy any longer. I thought the Old Testament law didn't apply any longer. I thought we just needed wisdom and mankind would make up their own law based upon wisdom. Don't we have enough wisdom to separate our law from God's law and just do great and mighty things? You tell me. But Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say it's okay to separate man-made law from God's law because God's law, letter C, is the only true foundation for any law. God's law is... I've already said this, so I'm just repeating myself as usual. It's the only true foundation for any, any, any law. Family, church, civil, any law. It's founded. It's founded. Will you find every good law in the Bible? No, because, because God's law isn't, isn't, able to under, isn't able to address in, in short form everything that's going to happen. But we find the foundation for it. And if you don't have God's foundation, what do we have? Mankind. How does that go when man has its own foundation? What happens when mankind has their own foundation is you have homosexual marriage as law. You have abortion as law. You have coming to a place near you, transgenderism, and women in men's bathrooms, and men's and women's bathrooms, and locker rooms, and all of this mess. That becomes law. That becomes right and wrong because they have no foundation besides their whims and desires. It's not going well. And you think you've hit the end of it? Just, just when you think mankind can't come up with something crazier, they will because you can't get far enough in your own mind to the end of it. Some of you are old enough to remember when you could not have imagined in your worst nightmare a day like today in our nation. So do you remember when homosexual marriage was enacted into law by our wonderful Supreme Court? Just found it in the Constitution. Do you remember that? What year was that? Anybody? Two thousand fifteen. 2015. Less than because it was right at the end of their right, in like June, May or June. Less than five, uh, six years ago, almost six years ago. Doesn't it seem like about sixty years ago? I mean, I just got old. Wait, time goes faster. So why does it seem anyway? Never mind. That's my rabbit trail. And now it, it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And you couldn't imagine. Go back, to, go back to 1995, 20 years before the Obergefell decision. Did you know anybody who was saying, guess what? The United States in 20 years will have homosexual marriage, so-called homosexual marriage as law. Anybody saying that? Anybody believe that would have happened? Go back to 2005, 10 years. We couldn't see it coming. We didn't think it would ever happen, and it did. And it's coming faster and faster and more and more. And you think, no, we've hit the end. We've hit the bottom. It is, there's no bottom to the depravity of man, untethered from God's law and God's word. All right, I've got to stop and move on. God's law concerning the responsibilities for caring for the elderly. I'm going to move rather quickly here, but I'm going to give you some homework. What does God's law say about what Jesus is dealing with, the care for the elderly? I want to apply this to very specific situations that we face in our very specific world. Who has a responsibility to care for the elderly? Now, you, no one wants to answer this out loud because you probably haven't done the research. Who has a, the responsibility? Well, say, well, who's telling, me, who, who, who's telling me who's responsible? Am I going by God's word or are we going by civil law? Do you understand the problem right when I say it like that? According to God's word, let's talk about it. We'll talk about it from God's word because everyone knows the welfare system we have in our, our nation. But I want to go through this basically and quickly. There are only four realms of authority biblically: self-government, family government, church government, civil government. There are four governments. Which one is responsible for the care for the elderly? Who gets to decide that? So, first of all, let's look at self-government. Write this passage down. Study it later. Many of you know it. At least you know part of it. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Many of you have that emblazoned on your forehead. You, you talk about that a lot. If you won't work, you don't eat. That's what you tell your kids. And you should tell them that legitimately. I don't want to clean my room. Okay, you don't have to clean your room. But you won't eat until you clean your room. Child abuse. No, it's not. You don't work, you don't eat. You won't do the chores. I will only do chores if you give me an allowance. Well, you don't work, you don't eat. Now, you say, you're just crazy. You sound like a really old person. I'm a little crazy and quite old, but we'll go on. Here's the point. Self-government. Who feeds you? Who's responsible for feeding you and housing you and clothing you? According to the Bible, you are. Self-government. No one else is primarily responsible for feeding and clothing and caring for you than you. You can take that to every personal need you'll ever have in your life. Therefore, if you are unwilling to care for yourself, who's supposed to care for you? Notice I said unwilling, not unable. If you won't work, the government and your family and your church should just let you starve to death. Okay, we'll move on. That's what it says. Because we hear that some of you walk in idleness. You're busybodies. You're lazy. And so the church isn't supposed to care for you. The government's not supposed to care for you. Your family's not supposed to care for you. Work quietly. Earn your own living. Isn't that amazing how foundational that is to society? Earn your own living. Don't depend on family or government or church. That's self-government. But, but, here's the but, but when your elderly parents can no longer take care of themselves, who's responsible? Now we've gone out of self-government. We have three realms left. Which one? Family, church, or civil. Which government is left? Do you know the Bible? We just read it. Jesus Christ just told us. The family. Period. Family government. This is what it means to honor your father and mother. How do I know that? How do I know that honoring your father and mother means you care for your elderly parents when they can't earn their own living and care for themselves? When they can no longer self govern they are unable, not unwilling. So you don't, <laughs> you don't leave here, 55 years old, and call up your 25-year-old kid and say, Best, guess what? Daddy's moving in because the Bible says you've got to take care of me. And if you don't take care of me, you're not honoring your father and mother, and I can kill you. You can't do that. Why? Because of 2 Thessalonians 3. If you can work and you can feed yourself and care for yourself, you must. But when you can't, unable, Not unwilling, but unable. And uh, there is a distinction there, big time. Then your family must take care of you. How do I know that? Because Jesus taught that right here. Christ taught it. Matthew Henry says, By our Savior's application of this law, it appears that denying service or relief to parents is included in cursing them. This is what it means to curse your parents, to revile your parents, is to let them die of starvation. say, well... Not care for them when they can't care for themselves. So this is what the apostles taught in the New Covenant. It's not just what Christ said. The apostles taught it in 1 Timothy 5. I was going to have you turn there. We were going to walk through it. I'm not going to do that. That's homework. 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. through 16. If your parents, if your aunt and uncle, if your grandma and grandpa, if your children and grandchildren cannot care for themselves, You must care for them. Even if you're a widow, you must care for others if you're able. I thought widows all get taken care of. No, if a widow is able to care for others, they have a responsibility as a member in a family to care for their kids or grandkids or a sister or brother or aunt or uncle if they can. But what happens when there is no family, there are no relatives who can take care of someone who's unable to take care of themselves. So let me apply this to a real-life situation. Dick and Phyllis Taylor have taken in their invalid, uh, bedridden son. Uh, Dick and Phyllis are, what, 80? I should, I mean, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they care. You get to a certain age, you don't care if everybody knows how old you are. I hope that's true. They're around 80. And if you know Dick and Phyllis, and many, many, most of you know, do, they have their own tremendous physical struggles. And yet, they understood this law. That if my children can't take care of themselves, I must do everything I can to care for them. They brought them into their home. They are nursing. They are doing all these things. And most of you cannot, we, we cannot understand how they can afford it. They can't. How they can sustain themselves physically, only by God's grace. And yet they are obeying God's command. Will God bless them? Will God care for them? Will God meet their needs? Or should they demand that the government do this? I know the first thought that came into my mind, why do they have to do it? What about Social Security? What about welfare? What about all these other situations? Why must they do it? And I will confess, the reason I think that is because I've been thinking wrongly for decades. I'm 46, so for four and a half decades, I've been thinking wrongly because I thought this was the government's job to take care of people who are invalid, people who can't work, uh, people who are handicapped, all those kind of things. Social Security. We have come to understand and believe that's the government's job. But the Bible doesn't say that. And Dick and Phyllis know that, and they're doing what they must do according to the Scripture, and they're obeying God. And some of you are doing it not for kids, but for parents. Many examples in our church family, taking care of parents when they can't take care of themselves. That is biblical. That is honoring your father and mother. And to not do that would be to revile them, to curse them, no matter how nice you are when you talk to them. So what happens if there is no one to care for a widow? No one to care for someone who can't care for themselves. Church government. The church only steps in if there's no family. She must truly be a widow for the church to take responsibility. And you can read all that in 1 Timothy 5. Now, civil government. I'm moving quickly somewhat. Civil government. Where does the Bible teach that the civil government is responsible to care for anybody's physical needs ever? Food stamps, free lunch at school, free clothes, retirement. I, I, I am seriously asking this question because I don't have the ability or the time to read the entire Bible just looking for this on my own. So I challenge you to think about that. Where is a civil government responsible to care for anyone's physical needs ever? Now I, There might be places. I'm open to that. I want to know. I want to know, and we need to know. But I don't believe, especially in this instance, who takes care of elderly parents? This is the same people that take care of kids. Who's responsible to feed and care for your children when they're unable to feed and care for themselves? House, clothes. I mean, I can go on and on. I'll I'll just, you know, once we get to a certain point, what's another 20, 30 minutes, you know, at a certain point. I told you you can stand up, move around, do whatever you need to do. So, what happens with uh, stimulus checks, and what happens with welfare checks, and what happens with uh, disability checks, and what happens with all these things that we've gotten used to and dependent upon for the government to give us things, and where do we find a biblical foundation for that in law at all? And yet, many Christians will fight for those things, demand those things, because they don't understand what the Bible says. Now, how do you keep old people from dying of starvation? if the government doesn't do it. Are you there yet? If you let your elderly parents die because you have cursed them and reviled them and will not care for them, if you refuse to care for them and they die from neglect, that's what we call it these days, right? When you neglect someone to the point of, we call it neglect even before they die, but if they die of neglect, that's called child abuse or elder abuse. And people are... Held civilly responsible for allowing people they're responsible to die. Do you agree with that law? Civilly? Do you think that, that law follows from biblical law? Therefore, if your elderly parents can't feed themselves and you refuse to feed them and they die of starvation, what should happen to you, child? 48 year old child, 55 year old child? Put to death. Do you think that would solve the welfare problem in America? Not completely. Just like any other law, people will still violate the law even if the penalty is death, but it will greatly reduce the issue. Will it not if we just obeyed God's law and applied God's law? And you say, that's crazy because that's what it means to curse and revile. It doesn't just mean saying bad words to your parents or having an attitude. That's not what what the law is because these are severe circumstances. If you don't care for your elderly parents, what happens to them in a society when there's no governmental help? No church family. In the day this law is given, who takes care of elderly people in Israel? If there's no command to civil government, then it's only the family. And if the family doesn't do their job, parents die. And then what happens to kids? Who let their parents die? You say parents would never do that. I mean, kids would never do that. Have you met my kids? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. Would parents ever let kids die of neglect? Would parents ever starve kids to death? Abuse children to death? Kill their own kids? Doesn't it not come up all the time? And if we had the death penalty for that, would that not solve that problem as well? Can we go on and on? Yes, we can. And uh, we probably shouldn't for sake of all kinds of things. Why won't kids take care of their parents? won't parents take care of their kids? why are you trusting in the government to give your kids free lunch instead of giving your own lunch? Don't you, don't this stuff kind of bother you sometimes? Like if we don't have school, government school, and we don't have government lunch, then kids won't eat and kids will be neglected. Whose job is it to feed kids? Parents. Well, I can't feed my kids and have cable. I can't feed my kids and And buy alcohol and cigarettes. I can't feed my kids and have three cars. Are you you with me? So why won't kids take care of their elderly parents? Because I can't have all the stuff I want. They crimp my lifestyle. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the money. I can't do that and all the things I want to do. Greed and selfishness drives our problem. And we can decry greed in business and in government and we can call all kinds of capitalists greedy, but we won't call people greedy who won't put themselves and sacrifice for their own family, for their own parents, for their own kids, for their own church family. We don't call those people selfish and greedy and we should. It's an abomination. It's wicked, it's sinful, it's a violation and disobedience of God's word. And if you honored your parents, you wouldn't look at your money, you wouldn't look at your possessions, you wouldn't look at your own retirement and your own savings for retirement and building another five bedrooms onto your five bedroom house. You wouldn't look at it that way. You would say, I love my parents, I honor my parents, I'll care for them, I'll sacrifice for them. Because I know what it means to honor my father and my mother, no matter the cost, till I have nothing left. And we see people like that and we wonder why they do what they do. Because they're obedient to God's word and they love God and they honor their parents. That's what it means. Conclusion. If you're an unbeliever here today, what must you do? If you're not a Christian, if you are a religious hypocrite in the sense of not following Christ, you need to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. Trust in Him as the only Savior from the penalty of your sins. Trust in Him. He's the only Savior from your sin of hypocrisy, your sin of rebellion, your sin of dishonoring your parents, every sin, only Christ can pay the penalty. And if you're a Christian, submit to God's law in every area of life. Submit to God's law in every area of life. Learn how God's law still applies and should apply today. We have a lot of homework to do. I have a lot of work to do. You have a lot of work to do. Don't let me just do all the work. Challenge me, question me, come to me. Let's sit down with the word of God and try to understand how does God's law apply today? How do we understand the Old Testament today? And what do we do with it? How it applies in all these ways. Let's pray. Father, we just don't have enough time in in one sitting to cover everything. We don't have enough time to understand everything, to apply it to everything, to, to wrestle with everything. Lord, help us as Christians to wrestle, to struggle, to wonder, to ask questions, and then to do the hard work of studying the Bible to answer them. Lord, may no one here just take my word for it. May no one here just take my interpretation for it. May no one here just say that's true because Pastor Field said it. God forbid. May it never be. But may we seek to rightly divide the word of truth, rightly apply it, rightly understand it, so that you would be glorified, that we would please and honor and worship and follow and submit to you in everything, even when it comes to caring for our parents when they're older. Lord, it's, it's very practical, very real. And in so many ways, we just don't know. Forgive us, deliver us, change us, transform us today. In Jesus' name, amen.